For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. The group Oklahomans Decide Healthcare is celebrating a win from the state Supreme Court. In near record time, the justices found the challenge by the Oklahoma Council of Public Affairs wasn't enough to derail the initiative petition for the November 2020 ballot. Ryan, last week you predicted the ruling would go in the group's favor, but did you expect it to drop just a few hours after <laughs> oral arguments? They couldn't have postmated it faster than that. <laughs> no. I, mean, uh, I, I think that everyone was, was really surprised about how fast it came and how short and succinct it is. I mean, if you look at the opinion online uh, on the Supreme Court website, you're looking at a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs, depending on how you count some of the lines. Uh, it was very straightforward. The, the, uh, the ballot measure is going to move forward now. And I think that uh, we saw the arguments by the, uh, the defenders of the ballot measure, Melanie Rugani. I mean, one of the things that we should really take away with this is, you know, we try to do some behind the scenes stuff here. Melanie Rugani, that name, I think, is going to become one of the most important legal names as we move forward. And, and, uh, and we have conversations about legal issues. You know, we talk about Robert McCampbell in here a lot. <clears throat> we talk about, you know, several other lawyers. Uh, that are you know front and center on initiative petition and constitutional work and uh, arguing before the Supreme Court. Melanie showed her chops uh, earlier this week, and I think we're going to hear more from her uh, moving forward. But the big news is is that State Question Seven Hundred Two is going to go on the ballot. Hundreds of thousands of Oklahomans are now uh, of Oklahomans are now going to have an opportunity if they get the hundred and seventy thousand plus signatures uh, to vote to expand Medicaid in the state of Oklahoma, potentially protect lots of rural hospitals and expand health care coverage for a lot of adults that are currently not covered by Medicaid. And even OCPA's uh, challenge didn't really have much water when you've got the state attorney general actually saying that the just should turn it down. And, and as Ryan said, I mean, this was not some uh, something that really caught people by surprise. I think the expectation was it would move through the court. And now it, it really becomes this political football game uh, the uh, the process of getting the signatures uh, that that there's a high expectation that probably can be successful and and uh, withstand any challenge if that were to be true then the big question is when does this go on the ballot and I think the you know from a political kind of uh, pundit standpoint you look at it and you say well, what would be you know where are the pros and the cons on uh, both sides of where, where they would like to see it is it the November general election ballot is it something more obscure? I mean, in terms of voter turnout, like uh, the pr the primary runoff in August of 2020. I mean, those things become a factor long term down the road. But I think the more interesting thing last week was a, a poll that came out, the Sooner poll, mm -hmm. that was really the first uh, survey that uh, really took a look at uh, Medicaid expansion. And and uh, the takeaway really, I think uh, Pat McFerrin in his analysis, he basically said that the, that the state question does start with a lead, but that the passage is not uh, assured. And he went on to, just to uh, really point out what is, again, I think not a surprise that, that it is a partisan divide between Republicans and Democrats at the outset. And that uh, basically, the I think the biggest takeaway is that the number was 70% of voters uh, support some sort of Medicaid right. expansion. So I think I think it's it's the question is is it this that goes on the ballot and if passed goes into the state constitution or is it an Oklahoma plan which seems to have a little a little broader support across Republicans and Democrats in terms of um, uh, something that would be uh, uh, something that would be not only passed at the polls potentially, but something that might more directly address this problem. But that would require the state, uh, the governor, the lawmakers to come together, and they haven't always been successful in 
going ahead in, in in preventing things like this to to getting to the ballot. And they've they've tried to do that in the past. And there's, that's always an argument whenever you're talking about a ballot measure is are, are you going to uh, are you doing this to provoke the legislature to do the right thing? And I think that initially the conversation around a ballot measure on Medicaid expansion was just that it was an effort to get the legislature to do the right thing. I think the timing is over for that. Unless the legislature and the governor come back into a special session and move something forward, my, my sense is that they're going to, you can always not turn your signatures in, but once the, once the signatures are turned in, I mean, you're, the train's left the station. And so you know, my, my sense is that this was always going to be the political game here. The, the legal challenge was just, I mean, it's almost pro forma at this point. Whenever you're opposing a ballot measure, the first thing you do is you look and see if there's a legal challenge that you can lodge and you lodge it, it regardless of how strong it is. I mean, this one obviously wasn't very strong, but you lodge that legal question. But the proponents of the measure here of, of state question uh, uh, 802, what they're looking at is uh, if they had if they had lost at this, they still have plenty of time to go back to the drawing board. Now we're just looking at the acceleration of the signature collection and we're going to move right into the political battlefield. Could the lawmakers come up with something before in the next session? Maybe? Well, I, it, what, is it, it, could it be the next session? Or more importantly, could it be in a special session, uh, perhaps right. this fall? A lot of people discount that, say that's not on the table. That's really not been a discussion. But in this survey that I just mentioned, the Sooner survey, one of the questions talked about uh, the very idea that the legislature and the governor uh, develop uh, their own plan, this Oklahoma plan. And when they polled that, uh, 48% of the people were supportive of the idea of let these folks, you know, try to do that as opposed to 21% that were saying no expansion of Medicaid at all. So it's an issue. And, you know, somewhat like I think when we when we reflect back on the medical marijuana issue, I mean, it, rather than an issue where the voters seem to have a lot of a lot of opinion right up front, only 19% were undecided when asked the, the ballot uh, question of, you know, if, if the election were held today, I mean, are you for or against or undecided? So with that setup, I think it really speaks to the issue of does the legislature want to be on the front end or the back end of this train? And I think uh, I think that there should uh, should uh, be some serious discussions about that because until those signatures are gathered or the process starts, or as you say, even if they get the signatures, uh, whether or not they turn them in. The end result is, I mean, I think this is an issue, as we've talked about before, that's not going away, and it's just a question of how wise we approach it in terms of trying to resolve resolve the matter and get a, <clears throat> get a real workable solution. Legislature's had five years to work on it. I think that the, the people look at medical marijuana and they think, well, the people got it better than the legislature ever would have gotten medical marijuana. Uh, and, you know, the other question, and I don't know the answer to this. I mean, there, there would be some complicated legal questions. If the ballot measure moves forward on the ballot, the legislature does something before uh, or does something next legislative session, you know, which would which would control. I mean, the, the ballot measure would pass after the 2020 legislative session did something. So it would supersede anything that conflicted with. But you could go back. Measure. You could go back and say, well, we've already passed something. So maybe more voters would decide to vote no on, on the. Con yes, the constitutional that would actually do whatever. The yeah, I mean, there's a lot of legal and political amendment. strategy that would have to go into what do you of, do in that and situation. And there have been some things tossed out there, for instance, on the whole issue of how do you pay for this? I mean, where, where do where does the state come up with the additional dollars that would be needed uh, in if there was full Medicaid expansion? And I think there have been things tossed around loosely, but still out there in the conversation of perhaps uh, putting something like a, a dedicated uh, a sales 
or a, a state income tax, 1%, whatever the nut mm-hmm. figure is, on the ballot at the same time and say, look, here, voters, if you want to have Medicaid expansion, here's a way for the state to fund it so we don't go upside down like many of these other states that have done the full expansion. The fate of $85 million from the opioid settlement with Teva Pharmaceuticals is awaiting a judge's ruling. The state is calling on Norman Judge Thad Balkman to put the money into the state treasury, according to a new state law on settlements. But the attorney general is wanting it in escrow until the end of his case against Johnson & Johnson. Bachman says he will have a decision in 15 days. Neva, why the delay? Well, I think I think the uh, the judge made it clear that he wanted to get this right and that he wanted to hear all parties. So that's why they took the uh, amicus briefs from the uh, uh, governor and the and the legislative leaders and and are really taking a long look at this. and And it is a big question mark. I mean, if if we're talking about the the Johnson and Johnson trial, if if this goes if this goes indefinitely, if there's no Um, no no light at the end of the tunnel, we could be looking at a long period of time. So uh, it does build the contention, I think, uh, the contentiousness between the legislative uh, folks and the attorney general on this. I mean, this intractable, both wanting their way with nothing in between, I think, frankly, Judge Balkman was wise to bring in in former Chief Justice uh, Stephen Taylor uh, in the role that he'll now be playing to try to get, uh, to try to mediate this and come to some reasonable uh, course uh, to pursue as opposed to just this uh, standoff that we have right now. Well, Ryan, any idea why why the attorney general would say, well, wait till the Johnson and Johnson suit <clears throat> is over? Well, because, I mean, what we're dealing with here is we're, we're, we're not dealing with normal damages. I mean, in a, in a, in a normal uh, case where you've got actual damages in, in a nuisance case, which is what this is, and if that's the claim is that there, we have a public nuisance uh, that's ca- been caused against the people of Oklahoma by these pharmaceutical companies. That's the first time that a nuisance claim like this has moved forward to a trial. I mean, we had similar claims like that during the tobacco litigation, but it never made its way to the to the they court. Didn't go I mean, to court and with so that, they didn't yeah. go to court with it. And so we're looking at this nuisance claim here. And in a nuisance claim, you typically don't get money damages uh, to to remedy your your harm. You get an abatement, and and that abatement means you know what does it take to fix the problem that's been caused by the nuisance and to stop the nuisance from going forward. And so is it. You know, that's that's the argument that the attorney general and his team are arguing right now is that that the legislation that the legislature passed at the end of this session to try to force settlement money directly into the general revenue fund doesn't apply here because we're not talking about typical damages. We're talking about money that's meant to abate a particular nuisance. And that is earmarked by law. And there you've got some you've got some separation of powers issues there because the abatement remedy is typically ordered by the court. And so you've got the judiciary that has the power to abate the nuisance through a remedy. And you've got the legislature now saying, well, we want the money to figure out how to abate the nuisance. And so that's why Justice Taylor's come in uh, at the at the request of Judge Bachman to try to resolve not only, you know, where does this money go, but to resolve some you know, constitutional conflict between these two institutions. Which makes begs the question, are we looking at something that might even go further on into the state Supreme Court when we're talking about separation of powers? Well, I'm, you know, I think if we don't have a, uh, a resolution here, absolutely. I mean, uh, there will be, I think that there could be a challenge as to, you know, who ultimately gets to control this money. And, you know, is this a settlement or isn't it a settlement? And if the settlement is about damages, well, then I think it would be clearly going to general revenue, but did they craft this legislation in a way that addresses this, you know, very particular type of claim uh, that the state's making against the opioid manufacturers and the distributors right now? 
Oklahoma City passes an ordinance to create an amnesty period for people with past traffic tickets and low-level offenders. Starting July 1st until March 31st of next year, anyone with issues dating two years or older can get their fines reduced by hundreds of dollars or even waived completely for people unable to pay. Ryan, what do you think of this move by Oklahoma City? I, I think that it's, 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 an, it's an easy uh, lift for the city to make uh, to bring about an enormous amount of justice. And, you know, I... The, the idea that, uh, you know, that I know that there have been, you know, several folks, including Mark Stonecipher, Joe Beth Hammond, uh, members of the city council that have been working on this city staff that have been working on this for, for years. And for this to come to fruition, it's a huge deal. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people that, you know, maybe got a traffic ticket and or, or some sort of a citation. And, you know, it may have cost $100 at the outset, but for you know, a lot of reasons, either they couldn't get off work, they have, they're homeless, uh, they have a mental health issue, any number of reasons that they might not be able to show up at the court and pay that ticket, it's now ballooned into hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars that, that's crippling for them and for the city. Because what happens is those folks have failure to appear, failure to pay warrants that are issued for them. They're out driving along, uh, you know, you know uh, the street in Oklahoma City, minding their own business, trying to get on with their life. They get pulled over for a simple traffic citation. They got a warrant. Officer has to take them to the county jail. Yeah. They go to the jail. And uh, then their cost balloon even further, and it becomes the spiraling out of control debt. Uh, and it's, 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 uh, it's a... It's a it's the wrong way for a criminal justice system to work. I know that there were some arguments that, well, this is going to incentivize people to, to not pay. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> if you can afford to pay, you're going to pay because you don't want hang, that hanging over your head. Right. Uh, so this is a way to allow the city to collect a little bit of revenue, but I think more importantly, allow people to go on with their lives. Neva? I think that's right. I mean, the, uh, the argument that uh, this will promote something <laughs> something where folks just feel like they don't have to pay their, their tickets, 70% of folks pay pay their tickets sure. every year. So we're talking about this this 30%, about 115,000, 16,000 outstanding uh, cases right now. So, I mean, in an effort to not only do this for a limited period of time, uh, allow, allow the amnesty period to uh, to take place, uh, to get revenue in the door, frankly, for the for the city, and to uh, and to get these off the books and 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 kind of clean this up. I think it's a good move on the part of the city council, and and this is not unprecedented. Councils have done this uh, since time began, and it, it's an age old problem. There's always the politics of uh, of the conversation that goes on, and the uh, and, and sometimes the uh, uh, the citizens who rise up and and are indignant and and very unhappy about uh, a vote like this, but in the bigger context of what's good for uh, dealing with this particular uh, issue, I think the fact that it was unanimous, even after the give and take on, on the horseshoe, I think the fact that it was the proposal did pass unanimously uh, does speak to um, to the overall thought process of, with these city leaders. And 116,000 cases out there, of, of, this just could, could finally, the courts would no longer have to worry about. Well, it's, a, it's an enormous, li- it's, a, it's a liability for the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a liability for the county. I mean, you've got 116,000 people that are eligible at any given point to end up in the Oklahoma County Jail, which can't afford more people in there. And then you have these folks that are walking around with a liability on themselves. I mean, not only are they uh, on the hook for hundreds of dollars and, and a traffic ticket, you know, they risk the potential now of going to jail, losing their jobs, being ripped away from their families and their communities. I mean, you go to jail on a weekend if you're a single parent, you could lose your parent, you could lose your children. They go into DHS custody Certainly all over lose a, your job over yeah. a traffic yeah. ticket uh, from years ago. You know, so uh, counselors uh, Hammond and Stonecipher and their leadership on this uh, was is really commendable, and uh, the city staff that have been working on this to put this together and that will begin to implement it. And they're going to have to report back to the council next spring about the results of of what 
this amnesty program. Well, and when you look like. at these yeah. tickets, I mean, when you're talking uh, zero to ten, the, one to ten over whatever in city yeah. limits, and you have a, a traffic ticket of one hundred and seventy-two dollars, there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of folks that on any given day getting that ticket. I mean, they've got a real problem because yeah. they aren't going to be able to pay that one hundred and seventy-two dollars, or they're going to have to make a big decision on what gets doesn't get paid to pay that. So, um, I mean, just the sheer just the sheer fact that years ago, I mean, when folks thought about a traffic ticket, you certainly didn't think about uh, the escalating costs that we see now in some of these uh, metropolitan cities in the instance here of $172 being your basic uh, kind of basic fine that you get for uh, just for this, for this speeding. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. devastating for low-income folks. Yeah. For, any, for anyone living paycheck to pay, pay, paycheck. Yeah, if, you're, if you're working minimum wage, I mean, you think about like what that constitutes in terms of your know, working hours and days. Yeah. yeah. Late last week, Governor Stitt unveiled a brand new website to let people know about state expenses and budgets. The governor says the Oklahoma Checkbook site will eventually provide real-time data down to the receipt level. Neva, what do you think of this idea? Well, I think uh, it, I think it's very understandable that the focus has been on this because Oklahoma sits with a D-plus uh, rating and is ranked, I think, 41st out of 50 states uh, in budget transparency. And the reason in this national study why we've gotten dinged at that at that at that uh, uh, level is the fact that not not necessarily that we didn't have the data, but that we didn't have a good transparent um, uh, database that was accessible uh, for folks to be able to to, to really uh, see this information. And so I think the focus quickly on this uh, was not you know as I say for Governor Stitt and bringing in the first uh, first ever uh, cabinet secretary really dealing in this area. Uh, I mean we've seen this uh, this real push. I I mean, they didn't hit their first deadline, and and it was not a surprise uh, because you're dealing with a lot of information from a lot of different uh, agencies, uh, different uh, uh, different ways that the data has been collected. So I think just being able to draw this all together and get a very highly customized ability to to search information in real time and see the information in real time is something that will not only help in in state but certainly help us in this top uh, top ten. Um, state uh, focus that the governor has, making that a reality nationwide. Right. Yeah, I think all all, all those things are are, are good and and, and well intentioned. I, I worry that that <clears throat> that uh, data collection like this uh, tends to get people to focus on shiny objects. Uh, you know, we we immediately heard people talking about the amount of travel uh, expenses that the state's incurring, especially whenever we have a uh, a moratorium on unnecessary travel for for state employees. You know, those things are those they're important, and you know, watchdogs and and legislators and policymakers are right to focus on them. But in the grand scheme of the budget, these things that sometimes pop out is like, oh my gosh, this, this looks terrible are, are really just drops in the pan, uh, and, and really, really obfuscate the, the real issues in terms of funding shortfalls and, and critical needs and state services and the ability to deliver those services to the people of Oklahoma. And, you know, so being able to connect those dots or being able to walk into these, uh, these data sets and understand that, that that's that that picture is not really there uh, completely. There is <clears throat> some question about what does the governor mean by a top ten state or a top twenty state? What are these metrics? And I don't know that that's fully been answered yet. I know that the, that's the governor's mantra is that he wants to make us a top ten state. But you know what? By what metric here are we talking about? Reduced spending? Are we talking about increased efficiency? Increased transparency? Are we talking about greater delivery of services? And then how do we measure those things? And I mean, I, we've we've heard a lot from the governor about 
uh, you know, generally uh, what that means, but where are we actually going to come up with some metrics that we can measure uh, as Oklahomans as to whether or not we're getting to where the governor wants us to go? Also, well, in oh, terms yeah. of this website, I think we, when we're talking about fiscal transparency, it is about getting the information out there, and I think they went wisely to other states that have open checkbook, uh, uh, have open checkbook resources, databases, uh, and I think uh, places like West Virginia and Ohio and some of the some of the uh, states that have been kind of the models that other states have looked to in terms of at least if they've revamped or started this process. Uh, so I think I think that we're looking at a, co- a couple of different things. Getting the information and what that says and making it available is one component. Now, what is done with that information from an agency standpoint, from a governing standpoint, from a public policy standpoint, that's a whole that that, that goes beyond. I think what we're talking about here just on the website itself. But I got to ask because uh, shortly after Governor Fallon got elected uh, in 2010, in, by 2011 she had her open books website, which was supposed to uh, create the transparency so that people could see what what agencies are spending. I'm, I'm not seeing where the where the well, and I think some of the to- criticisms, rightly or wrongly, was uh, even in the updating that sometimes it took months, if not mm-hmm. in one instance. I think that uh, uh, that Cabinet Secretary Ostro said it take it took two years. I mean, he is saying that these things need to be in 24 hours or 48 hours in very rapid fashion when information is either incorrect needs to be corrected or data needs to be continually uh, on the website and in real time, as they call it. I think that's the issue. I mean, you had you had yeah you had some availability and you had a database and you had a website but like anything it it uh, it's obsolete almost the day it starts so you <laughs> yeah. have to continue to upgrade and continue to enhance and and uh, do what is necessary and i think that's where we may have fallen short it certainly appears so at least the way we've been graded and scored by these national studies in in the past couple of years yeah i mean the, the last website was was like hotmail and the rest of the world moved on to, to gmail and, yes. and it was cumbersome it was difficult to use and i think that you know one of the things that that is uh, worthy of, of praise here is that you know we're, we're beginning to see an effort to get state agencies that are working on multiple systems and multiple platforms that don't always talk to one another uh, to try to get some uh, sense of you know to bring them into a place where we do have all of that information uh, at, at, at ready hand again you know there's there's a question of what we end up doing with that and and how uh, and how we end up measuring that I mean I, again Governor State has talked about us being a top 10 state. That is just such a, it's it's a great goal, but what does it mean? And as his administration goes on, uh, especially, you know, once we get uh, towards the election cycle, he's going to have to be able to say, this: these are the things that I meant, and, and this is how I should be graded on this. Oklahoma City Mayor David Holt makes history by officially declaring Pride Week. This was the first time for Oklahoma City, which only a few years ago battled with OKC Pride about putting up banners. This Saturday's Pride Parade also includes city and state leaders from both sides of the aisle. Ryan, what kind of statement does this bring to the LGBTQ community? I, I think that it's it's historic, and um, everyone, you know, it's it's aspirational as as to what we can do and what we can accomplish in a very short period of time as as advocates for social justice, even in what's perceived as one of the more difficult places in the country to be an advocate for social justice. It wasn't that, you just mentioned, it wasn't that long ago that the city of Oklahoma City, led by our, our the mayor at that time, uh, in an effort to shut down pride activities in the state of Oklahoma and had to be forced by a court uh, to allow uh, these banners to go up to celebrate pride. And now we're at a point where pride isn't just you know, isolated to, to one block. It's it's really happening around the city right now. And, um, you know, we have, you know, leaders from, again, Leaders from both sides of the aisle. Leslie Osborne uh, is, is uh, going and she's going to be marching the parade in both sides of, of the city council. Although it's a nonpartisan 
position. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, are, yes. but I, I, do, I do think that, you know, we, we have seen enormous strides in the last several years. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot left to be done. I mean, we're, we're still, we still see on a regular basis, uh, uh, violence against, uh, LGBTQ Oklahomans, uh, in particular, uh, trans women and trans women of color who are targeted for violence every single day. And, you know, so there's, there's a long ways to go. Um, and, and, but this is incredibly optimistic as to what has accomplished has been accomplished in what I would, you know, historically a relatively short period of time. It's felt like a really long time, but uh, it's happened a lot faster than I think anyone else would have ever imagined. Neva. Well, and I think uh, I think the, that Mayor Holt, when he uh, issued his proclamation on Monday, and I think the things that he said and been involved in, uh, certainly point to what he campaigned on. He said, I'm going to be the mayor for all of the people of Oklahoma City. He has is, he is, uh, built a kind of franchise, so to speak, on the idea that we need to be inclusive and and he's tried to involve uh, the community at every level and i think this is just one more demonstration of that ryan and eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the aclu klsu its staff or management